prior to uh, moving to uh, Wodonga, Diana and I had the privilege of part owning, and I say part owning, we shared the ownership of uh, our property there in Mailers Flat with the bank. Uh, we had a couple of acres of um, a really lovely country. There's some residual gum trees, some very old gum trees. You can see some of those in the slide there uh, that were on that block. And, and I can't help myself. I couldn't just let it go to rack and ruin. I mowed two acres with a, with a mower. It took me about six hours from front to back. And then whipper snipped around the trees and did all the fence lines. It was beautiful. It was like the botanical gardens. <laughs> um, we had our wood heap and our chickens. And uh, uh, there was a kind of a house yard and then uh, a double gate that had a double bow hinge. You're familiar with those kind of hinges that you can sort of latch two gates together, uh, which went out into this lovely outdoor paddock area that we really enjoyed using. And pretty much every time I went out there, um, Oliver, I'm not sure why I can't advance that slide, um, right down the back or wherever, I would take this friend of mine, our golden retriever whose name was Roddy, with me. He loved it. Uh, he would uh, wait at the back gate and there was a rule, it was an unbreakable rule that the dog could not go through the gate until the Bosque dog had gone through the gate and so we would open the gate and I would go through and then if I was to allow him I'd say, off you go and he'd go and he'd be out like a rocket and he'd run because there were all these heady smells out in the paddock Sometimes there were rabbits out there. Now that was hilarious to watch because this guy weighed about 35 kilos. He was as fit as a trout, no uh, fat on him whatsoever uh, and rabbits were way out the back there and he would go running. Uh, typically golden retrievers would run with their nose to the ground, you know, sniffing out the lay of the land that he would go. He knew there were rabbits and so he'd be off after the rabbits. And the rabbits, you know how rabbits behave when they're threatened? They kind of hunker down. Have you seen that happen? They, they go low and their ears go down. And I could see this happening from the gate. I could see the dog heading up the paddock and the rabbits knew he was coming and their ears would go down. And as he got closer, it was interesting to see what was going to happen. This big dog was coming after this little rabbit, or rabbits, plural. And then as he got very, very close, the rabbit would panic and off it would go. Now this is when the fun really began because the rabbit would hit 0 to 100, the dog took a little bit longer to get from 60 to 100 but he would be going and it was like poetry in motion to watch, it really was. It was hilarious because the rabbit would run and the dog would run and then the rabbit would do 90 degrees just like this and the dog, I can't demonstrate it to you but it would be a bit like if I was running takes a while to get around the corner and you could see the claws digging in and the dirt flying out the side as he turned and then the rabbit would go that way oh bother turn around around we would go and around and around until eventually the rabbit disappeared through a fence and the chase was over and then eventually after we'd been out in the paddock for some time doing whatever we were doing um, he would come back I would close the, the gates and we'd leave it for a few hours and then we'd go and do it all over again. <laughs> it was great fun. There was um, many occasions, because there were rabbits and because there were chickens, there were also foxes. And the foxes usually would come mooching along at night time. And we knew they were there because you could hear them barking. And if a fox started barking, then the dog would start barking. 
And so one night I remember waking up at about one o'clock in the morning with a dog, woof, 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 big deep bark. And I wasn't really sleeping that well. I thought, oh, blow it. What am I? I'll go and yell at him. And then I thought, no, let's, let's have some fun. <laughs> and so I quietly went out the back door and the dog heard that. He said, oh, good, something's happening. No, very excited. Um, snuck out the fa- to, the, uh, to the back gate, by which time the dog is quivering with excitement because he knows there's something going down. <laughs> something exciting is going on. Quietly open the bow hinge on the gate, open the gate, and the dog's going, oh, here we go. There's a fox out there. I've never been able to chase one of these. I wasn't sure how this was going to go either, by the way. And then I just said to him, go for it, man. Well, poof, off he went. That was the start of a great plan and the start of a great problem because it was pitch black. I had a torch, wasn't particularly powerful, and the dog was off and he was gone somewhere in the paddock, this way and that way. And every now and again as I'm holding my torch out trying to find him, I'd see a flash of golden retriever go by somewhere. And then I thought to myself, getting him out was easy, how am I going to get him back? Because typically in the daytime what I would do uh, is I stand at the gate <coughs> and he's still prowling around having a good time. I would get that, uh, that hinge and I'd bang it on the gate, a really strong metallic bang, bang, bang. I'd say, come on, come on, come on. And he knew he'd better be home because if he didn't come, I'd just shut the gate and he was stuck. And uh, Goldens, they, they're people, dogs. They don't want to be out there on their own. They're pack animals. Uh, but it, you can't do that at night time. It was bad enough that uh, there was barking happening. I couldn't bang the gate, I couldn't yell out, come on, come on, in the middle of the night because we had neighbours not too far away, just, you know, next door kind of thing. And so I tried all of the strategies and tactics that I had. We're like, come on, get back here, hurry up. Doing the best I could, quietly tapping the gate. And then I had to start walking around the patio. Where is this useless mutt, bonehead? You know, calling him all the names that um, you would uh, choose to call him. And it was in that moment that I wished I had the capacity to do that I reckon every dog owner has ever wanted to be able to do. Do you know what it is? Speak dog. (laughs) You had a pet dog? You want to be able to talk to them, right? Some Some people are of the view that they actually can. You know, that their dogs do understand them. And to some degree that might be true, although I've tested this theory. I tested it one time when I was feeding him. I went outside and, you know, dinner time, oh, yeah, dinner time, oh, good, it's coming come with food, terrific. And I'd say, are you ready for dinner? Oh, yeah, I'm ready for dinner. Are you ready to wolf into it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to wolf into it. So one time I said, oh, would you like a brick for dinner? Oh, yeah, brick, brick, it'd be good, really good, crunchy brick, mmm. You know, did he understand that? Of course he didn't understand. But every dog owner I've ever known uh, wants to be able to communicate by talking to their dog. In the same way that if you've got a cat, you probably want to talk to your cat, right? People throughout the ages have had um, pets, um, cockatoos. Have you been one of these people who'll go up to the cage a cockatoo um, sits in? What do you say? Hello, cocky. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you what the cockatoo's thinking. (laughs) Time to call the people with the white coats. (laughs) Or how about, um, you know, if you've got a goldfish, 
Have you ever watched someone try to communicate with their goldfish? This is what it looks like. (laughs) And the goldfish is the higher form of life. (laughs) Well, it'd be handy if you're a dog owner to be able to speak dog. It would be handy if you're a cat owner to be able to speak cat. Be handy if you owned a cockatoo to be able to speak cockatoo or goldfish to be able to speak goldfish. But we can't. That's one of the questions through the ages that God had to address too. How do I communicate with the people that I've created and love so much? How do I communicate in a way that will be heard and understood? How do I communicate in a manner that will be received by them? And there's probably two problems that God had to overcome in the process of communicating with us. The first is, and and we need to grasp this again because I think we've lost it to a degree in our society, we need to understand that God is totally different to us. We have created God in our image in so much as we've made God into a nice friendly kind of um, soft and fuzzy God that will do whatever we want you know we even go so far as to tell God what he should do this is what God should do about this this is the problem that God should fix this is how God would fix the problem or should fix the problem or more particularly how I would fix the problem if I was God but God is so different to us and we've got to hold that intention so communicating with us has its challenges he is totally different to us let's look at a couple of passages of scripture just to remind us psalm 145 verse 3 says great is the lord and greatly to be praised his greatness no one can fathom he is a great god and we use that word to describe him as a posture of worship and appropriately so but he's great in so many other ways as well His greatness, his understanding, his knowledge, his riches, his wisdom, his judgment, his ways, his thoughts, even his love is beyond being fully comprehended by us. I came across a passage from Job this week that I never really realised the significance of. Job chapter 26 verses 7 to 14 where speaking of God, Job said, he spreads the skies over empty space, he suspends the earth over nothing. These are some of the majestic acts of God. Uh, He wraps up the waters in the clouds, he covers the face of the moon, he marks out a horizon on the face of the waters, the pillars of heaven quake at his rebuke. What amazing things, incredible things. And then Job says, and these are but the outer fringes of his work. There's a statement you thought about that? You know, these magnificent things that we have trouble wrapping our heads around, they're nothing compared to the greatness of God. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? How is a God who's so different in that way going to communicate with us? And the second problem that relates in some ways to the first is God is a great and awesome and pure and holy God and we are fallen sinners who have chased our own agendas and done our own things and are so different to him in that respect as well. How does God speak to those who have rejected him? That's an interesting question and the scripture tells us that throughout history God has communicated with us in various ways. If you have a look at uh, Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 to 4 
It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to, words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. Now I don't know about you but there have been times... In fact, I'm confident that for many of you, you've been to places where you've looked out over the vista, over a, a view, over a, a mountains or countryside or desert or whatever it might be and just marvelled at God's creative capacity. What beauty there is in the natural world. A couple of years ago, I took Laura away with me. We did some diving over in some of the sinkholes in South Australia and when you get underwater even... You look around at the biodiversity and the things that are alive and working under there. It's just, it's picture perfect, beautiful. Evidence of God's hand and God communicates his uh, greatness through these things. And to think as you look at all this marvellous creativity and all this diversity and the richness that it all evolved from some amorphous single cell amoeba sometime, that's incredible how that worked. I say that tongue-in-cheek in case that's too subtle. God communicated to us through creation and yet the testimony of creation has been uh, corrupted for, Paul says here, since the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse but people have ignored that. The heavens declare the glory of God, but people look elsewhere. Throughout the history of God's engagement with the people of Israel, he sent them prophets to speak to them. Time and time again through history, he sent his messengers to call people back to himself and yet time and time again they were rejected. So chronic, in fact, was this rejection that uh, it came time when the Apostle Stephen was on trial before the Sanhedrin, he said... In utter frustration, you stiff-necked people, no wonder they were angry with him, uh, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers, uh, sorry, your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. God tried to speak to his people time and time again through history and yet they refused to listen. And then in God's patient love and out of his great mercy we come to the uh, observation made by the author of Hebrews at the start of the book when the author said, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. In, in finding a way, in seeking to find a way by which God might communicate in a clear in an um, unambiguous manner with us, in a way that we might understand, God recognised that the supreme means why, by which that could happen would be to become one of us. And that's why we're here today. Because God became a man 
the Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. If you're not familiar with the Christmas story, the language of the Bible, John is stating with unambiguous clarity that God actually became a human, that God became just like us. It's scandalous in the ancient world to even think about that. You know, in, in ancient Greek culture, this idea of the flesh, God becoming flesh, the Greek word's actually sarks. That's a horrible word, isn't it? It's, it's got a nasty feeling in your mouth, sarks. The idea of flesh is awful, you know? The, the, highest, um, the highest thing you could aspire to was to be free of the sarks, to get away from the flesh, to become spiritually enlightened. And yet God took on this flesh. It's the supreme affirmation of humanity. Back in 2003 or around about 2003, I had a visit while we were working in Papua New Guinea from a pastor friend of mine who was doing some research for his doctoral studies. He came uh, up and he was uh, asking the question, how do we go about communicating the gospel cross-culturally? As in from a Western culture into a Melanesian culture. It was a fascinating journey to go with him on. Uh, and he said, look, have you got some people I could go and talk to? I said, plenty of them. Why don't you go down to the, uh, the boys' village where the single men lived? Go and talk to them. And so Darren went down and spoke to the single men. He was down there for a while and he came back to the office where I was working and he, he was a little troubled. He could see he'd been unsettled a little bit. And I said, how did you get on? He said, well, it was kind of an interesting conversation because I asked the boys down there if... if if I'm going to communicate a message and it's going to really be understood, what do I have to do? And amongst other things, they said, well, you need to come and sleep with us. And Darren understood that as a euphemism that we use in the West for something completely different to what they meant. And he was a little bit, oh, my goodness, you know, is this some kind of weird... They really expect me to sleep with them? I said, Darren, what they're actually saying to you is this. If you really want to communicate with them, if you really want to be understood by them, if you really want to make a connection with them, you need to go and sit in their houses with them. You need to sleep on the floor in their houses with them and stay with them. You need to eat the food around their smoky fires with them. You need to tell stories with them. You need to go walking in the bush with them. You need to go into town with them. You need to do stuff with them. You need to actually incarnate. That means be with them. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came and became a man. And what is really significant is that we can find no parallel in any other religion in the world where God has done that, or where a God has done that. No other God has ever stepped down from his almighty throne and become like us. And yet Jesus did just that. And here the Christian message stands alone for Jesus entered into our sufferings and is thus qualified to say, yes, life is difficult. It will be characterised by some exquisite joys and some extreme grief. It will be hard, it will be confusing, it will be wonderful. It will be fantastic, it will be awful. But come to me, you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Because he was the one who walked with us. It's never ceased to amaze me that God entrusted himself into the body of a helpless infant. Have you thought about, thought about that? You know, God became a helpless baby in the hands of an inexperienced teenager. 
And those who came to look upon him didn't ooh and ah as we are wont to do. They fell at his foot, at his feet and worshipped him. And John alludes to this as the right response for in verse 14, the very next words that he says thereafter, explaining that uh, the word became flesh, is that we have beheld his glory. We are privileged to have seen his glory. There's some words I want to finish with that were written some years ago, published in the Word for Today, which some of you are familiar with. Speaking of the birth of Jesus, it says these words, He was born in abject poverty, yet a choir of angels filled the heavens with songs of his greatness. A star that astronomers still can't explain to this day became the compass that brought world leaders to worship at his manger. His birth defied the laws of biology and his death defied the laws of mortality. No miracle is greater than his life and teaching. He owned no wheat fields or fisheries, yet he spread a table for 5,000 and he had bread and fish left over. He never walked on expensive carpeting, yet when he walked on water it supported him. When he spoke the wind and the seas obeyed him. His crucifixion was the crime of all crimes, yet in God's eyes no lesser price could have uh, made your redemption possible. When he died, few mourned, yet God hung a black crepe over the sun. Those who crucified him never once trembled at what they'd done, and yet the earth shook beneath them. Sin couldn't touch him, decay couldn't claim his body, the soil that was reddened with his blood couldn't claim his dust. For over three years he preached the gospel, yet he wrote no books, built no cathedrals and seemingly had no great financial resources. And yet, 2,000 years later, he's still the central character of human history, the perpetual theme of Christian preaching, the pivot around which the ages revolve and the only redeemer of the human race. For every other man, uh, every other job, God sent a man, but in order to rescue and redeem you and I, God became a man. And at Christmas time, we are again invited to meet Jesus, the infant, but not just the infant. God incarnate, God became flesh. The one who loved us so much that he was prepared to come to earth and live and then die for us. We praise him today. Let's pray. Lord God, word become flesh, we do exalt your name and worship you. You are the great, mighty and holy God. We thank you again for this special occasion on which we remember your birth, but it is but one time, uh, one moment in the year when we want to acknowledge that you are Saviour and Lord. And so take uh, what we've heard today too uh, and live it from this time. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We declare that you are Lord, that you are Saviour that you are the one who is able to bring life and healing in our brokenness and the brokenness of our world. And so today, Lord, we bring our confusion, our anxiety, our fear, our uncertainty, our hopes, our desires, our longings, and we lay them at your feet knowing that you're a good God. We thank you that you lived a sinful life amongst us that we might have life. And today we go from this place victorious in Christ, empowered by the presence of your spirit, filled with your love, overwhelmed by your joy. Lord, we give you thanks for this day and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.